Welcome to Protect, suicide prevention training podcast for healthcare professionals. I'm Manan, consultant psychiatrist, founder, and head of faculty at Progress Guide. Good day. This is Mahi, your host. We are on to episode 14 and about to dive into the AWARE framework. We began the CES module in episode 13. Manan provided an overview and we started looking at attitudes to suicide and why awareness regarding where one stands is so important in terms of care delivery. Not right or wrong attitudes, just awareness. We ask you all to pause and reflect. Where do you stand on the question? Should suicide always be prevented? Under what circumstances might you consider suicide for yourself, if at all? Is suicide a sin or is it a right? Is suicide cowardice or does it require courage? Is suicide a selfish act? Manan, we might have raised more questions than we answered. And even if our listeners did not get answers and just thought about different perspectives, I believe we succeeded. Do you agree? Absolutely. As you said, no right or wrong answers, just awareness. If you think suicide is unequivocally wrong, you might be judgmental and that may impact therapeutic alliance and relational safety. If you think it should be a permissible act, then you may not take definitive action to save a life and be considered negligent. There are pros and cons either way. Be aware. Awareness matters because your awareness of your attitudes impact your clinical decisions. If you haven't listened to episode 13, now might be a good time to do so as it also provides an overview of what will be covered in the six chapters of the CES module. Also, in episode 12, we talked about progress to practice, coming from three shifts, prediction to prevention, past to future, and deficits to assets. So keep that at the back of your mind. As usual, for the key messages and for the messages and images, either go to the podcast blog at www.progress.guide, or you can get the Protect Guidebook from Amazon to read along. The images are particularly helpful for visual learners and help with retention. Also, do not forget to rate us on Spotify or Apple Podcast. It helps us get the word out. Okay, let's get started with the WHERE framework. Tell us a little bit about the origin of the framework. To put AWARE into context, I have to share Ed's story. Whatever I'm sharing is in the public domain and comes primarily from the coroner's hearing. I also took Steve Mallon, Ed father's permission to frame aware in the context of Ed's death. So, February 9, 2015, 3.30 p.m., Edward Mallon, an academically and musically gifted 17-year-old Cambridge resident, threw himself in front of a train. On the 22nd of January that year, he had seen his GP and shared his suicidal thoughts. The GP was extremely alarmed and requested a 24-hour assessment. In the triage that followed, the telephone practitioner felt convinced with what Ed said, that he could keep himself safe. In his own words at the inquest, he assured me that this was not something he was going to do. And the 24-hour assessment request was downgraded to a seven-day assessment. He was assessed face-to-face by a crisis team practitioner on the 26th of January, who felt similarly reassured regarding safety. On 6th February, he saw a private psychologist where he spoke eloquently about his future plans. 
he was brighter after the appointment and the next day played on the Xbox with his brother and went to the pub with his friends. The day after that, we have his tragic death on the train tracks. At the surface, it seems everyone did right by Ed. But how did Ed pass away despite so many touch points with services? This really is sad. A life full of potential lost to suicide. Every death to suicide is tragic, but the loss of a younger person always hits us harder than others. It caught us thinking in our team about clinical decision making. Ed's story truly highlights how challenging clinical decisions can be. Assessors have to decide based on the information in front of them and make predictions about the future. The question arises, do assessors consider all the information in a logical, factual way or are there other unconscious influences on their decision-making? So, in the Cambridge Crisis Team, which was involved in Ed's assessment, we conducted a qualitative study trying to identify what influences the decisions that are made by assessors. Given the podcast is being heard in over 50 countries, many of our listeners may not know what a crisis team is. Fair point. Uh, in Australia, the closest semblance will be the acute care team. Not sure what it will be in the US. In the UK, crisis resolution and home treatment teams are at a critical juncture in the care pathway of patients in suicidal distress. They gatekeep all inpatient beds and provide an alternative to admission. Following the gatekeeping assessment, outcomes involve uh, inpatient psychiatric admission, intensive home treatment support, onward referral for continuing care to a community mental health team, and at times, feedback to the referrer that the patient does not meet the threshold for secondary care. In many countries, emergency departments have this decision-making role. I guess you get the picture. You can think of the team that assesses people in suicidal distress and decides where to from here. Okay, so you conducted a qualitative study on the staff in the Cambridge crisis team. Yes, we conducted semi-structured, face-to-face interviews of the multidisciplinary staff of the crisis team, individually. Participants discussed an assessment they have carried out within the last 24 hours, and using a laddering technique of repeated why or why was that or asking so what, the reasons behind the clinical decisions were explored. The goal was establishing how decisions relating to risk and treatment needs were arrived at. Transcripts of the interviews were then thematically analysed. So, what did you all find? The results showed that suicidality was the primary reason for referral. As expected, managing patient need in terms of treating the symptoms or mitigating the risk was the primary driver for the decisions. Statements like, she was admitted for her own safety. She was unpredictable. It would have been difficult to manage that in the community at that time. Admission was the right decision. So these kind of statements came out and we tried to understand how the decision was arrived at to either admit or not admit and support the person at home. Surely you did not need a study to tell you that patient need and risk were the reasons behind the clinical decisions. Aha, this is where it gets interesting. The study also revealed that during the assessment, clinicians collated considerable information but these assessment findings were not processed uniformly. Patients with similar need and risk profiles could end up getting 
rated very differently in terms of risk and could end up in diametrically opposite treatment pathways from being admitted onto an inpatient psychiatric ward all the way to being signposted to a non-governmental agency for support. A range of mental shortcuts were used. Clinicians described these shortcuts as common sense or educated guesses. However, they were often unaware of these processes and they came to light only when their judgment calls were directly brought into question. So these are like heuristics. Yes, that is a nice word to describe the sum total of all the stereotyping, rule of the thumb, gut instinct, instinctive judgment, common sense and educated guesses. After a few annoying rungs of the ladder of assessors being asked, uh, why did you decide that? And why was that? And can you explain that a bit further? You hit a wall where the clinician goes, because that's what you do in that situation. And one can see that there is a heuristic or a mental shortcut has come into play. I guess this mental shortcut could be previous knowledge, experience, beliefs, biases, and or a combination of all of those. Yes, that's correct. Based on these findings, we constructed the framework called AWARE with five themes which we will cover systematically. Why do we need such a framework? Well, AWARE pins down the key drivers of clinical decisions. AWARE protects against undue influences in the act of clinical decision-making. It is intended to make practice safer. Its use in clinical supervision or multidisciplinary case reviews should bolster practice by making individuals and or teams who assess people in suicidal crisis mindful of the implicit effect of the aware factors. Aware promotes reflection in action, on action, and for action. There is a specific focus on clinical decision-making. However, it also supports a critical contemplative process of evaluating one's attitudes, beliefs, values, thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and learning needs in the context of clinical work, evidence-based practice, and professional culture. And all of this is achieved by highlighting subjectivity in clinical assessments. Yes, that is one very important aspect of AWARE. There is an assumption that clinicians make decisions based on objective risk-related findings in an assessment. As I was saying, that clinicians accounted for the variations in their decision-making by using terms like common sense and gut instinct. These mental shortcuts in decision-making will seem diametrically opposite to decisions being firmly rooted in clinical findings from a holistic biopsychosocial assessment that is also drawing on the person's cultural, environmental, and spiritual context. Other studies from Professor Bhukra's group also highlight a similar lack of awareness of errors and biases that may creep into clinical decision-making. Aware aspires to make the implicit explicit. You mentioned in the CESS overview your preoccupation with acronyms. I'm assuming the five heuristic themes that influence information processing fit neatly into an easy-to-remember acronym, AWARE. Absolutely, they do. So A is for anxiety. So anxiety generated or diffused in the patient, family, carer, friend, referrer, triaging or assessing practitioner, right? So A is for anxiety. W is for waiting. Waiting of symptoms elicited. Now, this may be related to the diagnosis, like comorbid conditions like personality disorder, alcohol or substance misuse, or the course of the illness. It could be an acute illness or a chronic onset, 
uh, or an acute and chronic picture, factors considered outside the core remit. So how much weighting is given for that? So relationships, finances, accommodation, employment, family, carer availability. So W is for weighting. The third letter, A, is for agenda. So agenda elicited in the referrer, patient, family, practitioner, or team. The fourth letter R is for resources. So resources either identified or not identified in terms of inpatient beds or home treatment capacity. And finally, the fifth letter E is for experience. So experience generalized from same patient to different presentations, other patients from the same diagnostic group, or other patients from the same demographic group, or experience that is generalized from past adverse events. A for anxiety, W for waiting, A for agenda, R for resources, and E for experience. I'm assuming we will explore each of these in detail. I think we may only have time to look at anxiety today, but yes, we will work our way systematically through each factor. So, tell us more about how anxiety influences clinical decisions. Okay, consider the following two statements by assessing clinicians from the AWARE qualitative study. The first one is, well, sending him back to the referring community team was straightforward. He was able to engage in it, where it stands for the assessment, despite the difficulties with his symptoms. Now, the second statement runs like, there was obviously some urgency to it. It here means admit, admit to an inpatient ward. He had strong thoughts of taking an overdose the previous day and his wife had to take time off work because she was concerned about his help seeking. In the first, the patient is discharged home and in the second, the patient is admitted. Yes, but both statements were made by clinicians who had assessed very similar patients in terms of symptom severity. So, in a young, agitated, suicidal male with limited protective factors, willingness to engage trumps symptoms of severe depression. Essentially, the expressed desire to engage diffused everyone's anxiety and became the rationale for not taking the person on for intensive home treatment support. In a very similar presentation from the second person or the second dialogue I provided, a diametrically opposite decision to admit to the hospital was made as anxieties were quite high due to his lack of help-seeking and engagement. What you are saying is unresolved anxiety in the assessor or the family for that matter resulted in the decision to admit, whereas where anxiety was addressed, the person was managed at home. Yes, but both were very similar in presentation. The decision was not determined by symptom severity or complexity or need. It was determined by how much unresolved anxiety was left. I get that anxiety is perhaps more a gut instinct than a cognitive one, but surely anxiety is a reflection of how much risk is left unaddressed in the clinician's mind, like the one with good engagement. Surely that is an indication of the risk being lower. True. Good engagement is a sign that you can work with the person towards recovery. But is it enough to send someone back to the referrer and not even take them on for intensive support, given you are not admitting them? In someone with severe agitated depression, how much would need to change for them to tip over into a suicidal state or make an attempt? Does engagement really trump severe symptoms of agitated depression? 
Okay, so what you are saying is that engagement here will form part of the risk formulation, but does not even come close to explaining the actual clinical decision not to take them on for intensive home treatment, if not admitting them. That's correct. What engagement does do is it diffuses the anxiety in everyone and provides a rationale for not taking the person on. Whether anxiety is resolved or is left unresolved has a major bearing on the clinical decision and the next steps in terms of treatment for the person. This makes anxiety the first aware factor. Is there a reason why you've chosen it to be the first? Because of how important it is. In the midst of a suicidal crisis, anxiety is present in everyone. The referrer feels less anxious knowing somebody else is dealing with the crisis. The patient and family feel reassured if they get the right help and the assessor's anxiety settles when the patient says that they can keep themselves safe. Thus, being aware of the impact of anxiety on the assessment process is crucial. If you stand back from the assessment of a person in suicidal crisis and looked at its purpose, you will discover that assessors have a dual role. The first is to assess. That is what the name suggests. Now, in the assessment, the more you dig, the more risk you will find. And this increases anxiety in everyone. As risks get explored and identified, the more anxiety there is overall. The assessment has also got an implicit second role. That is to contain the crisis by capturing hope, conveying that things will get better. Now that decreases anxiety in everyone. I see what you mean. A good assessment will highlight all the challenges ahead and that will make others anxious, but somehow the assessment also has to be containing. And you've talked about the explicit promise of hope and recovery in the core module quite a bit. This must be a difficult balancing act. Yes, it is a very difficult balancing act. As the two purposes of an assessment, one that increases anxiety and the other that decreases it, one explicit and the other implicit, could be at cross purposes. Many clinicians feel ill-equipped to deal with their own risk findings. Thus, they often veer away from inquiring too deeply about suicide in the fear that if they acknowledge a risk, they will have to manage it without the competencies or resources to do so. Yes, you've mentioned that in your training, even experienced clinicians say that if I use all the techniques in the SES module, like before now, and clearly document the risk that I discover, that they will be left exposed if things went wrong post-assessment. Yes, that comes up a lot and nothing can be further from the truth because there is a longer, more convoluted way to managing one's anxiety, which is to do a thorough assessment that exposes all the risks so that they can be addressed. Instead, clinicians drift towards minimizing the danger and use recovery language to instill hope and convey all is not lost. Generally, hope vending is protective and anxiety-containing, but it is not a replacement for thorough risk exploration. So, what should clinicians do? Well, for starters, be aware of one's anxiety levels and the impact it has on the assessment interaction. Actively seeking reassurances like, can you keep yourself safe, without a true appreciation of the dynamic nature of risk may create a misleading veneer of safety. The reassurance relates to the hope captured by the clinician, but the person may remain 
poorly prepared for emergent adversities, you know, what I call the what-if scenarios. This is described by Shia as a premature crisis resolution where one begins to capture hope but does not explore the risk in as much detail as it deserves to be done. Yes, those safety reassurances don't change the risk as the challenges still exist for the person, but they do bring anxiety down in the professional and provide a better night's sleep. Those reassurances are actually misleading and I actively tell my students not to go seeking them. They are a pointless exercise. Yes, you're right. It provides a better night's sleep, makes the assessor feel better about the assessment, but it also stops them from doing the essential safety planning. But I guess it is easy to understand why assessors ask those questions. Absolutely. Professionals have the difficult task of striking a balance between actions that increase and decrease anxiety, not just for the person and their family, but also for themselves. What we found in our study was that up to a tipping point, anxiety was managed by rationalizing risk-taking as positive risks in line with recovery philosophy. Beyond it, anxiety was contained through conservative and restrictive treatment options such as inpatient stay. The threshold is different for each clinician, but every clinician we found had a tipping point. The degree of unresolved anxiety is perhaps the most important influencer of the assessment outcome. So you were saying that anxiety works both ways. Sometimes anxiety that has been resolved help us take positive risks. And when it is not, we may end up looking for justification as to why it is okay to take restrictive measures like inpatient stay. That is absolutely correct. We see what we want to see. This is a theme that will recur through the entire AWARE framework. Anxiety is not a nice emotion to experience, so there is an unconscious driver to decrease anxiety, not just for the person in distress, but also for the assessor themselves. This is done through seeking reassurances relating to safety, or sometimes it is done, as I said, through restrictive means. However, assessors do know that risk is dynamic, particularly relevant when you are seeking safety reassurances. However, if they keep exploring the risk, they will feel anxious again. The shallow blanket statement, I can keep myself safe, is used to rationalize away why not to explore the dynamic aspect of risk fully. On the other hand, a highly anxious clinician may overlook all the potential protective factors and the strengths in the person as they struggle to manage their own anxiety. To bring progress to practice, it is so important to not just see what we want to see, but make decisions that are based on the facts of the presentation. Do you see what you want to see? Or do you dare to open yourself up to all that there is to see? The risk, the safety concerns on the road ahead, as well as the person's natural strengths and their natural circle of support. This brings us to the end of episode 14. Today you heard about Ed's story and all the touch points he had with services and still such a tragic outcome. The story highlights some of the challenges of working with people in suicidal distress and how dynamic risk is. Do we stop and think about how risk might evolve in the near future? Or is it just a cross-sectional opinion in the here and now? Do you in your practice seek out safety reassurances? Pause and think. Does it really impact the dynamic risk? The person feels safe in your presence, but what happens when they leave your consulting room? What do you think? 
Are safety reassurances meaningful? Or are they a pointless exercise designed to give you a better night's sleep? What do you think about them? Where do you stand? Tweet your thoughts about anxiety in the face of suicidal distress at hashtag guide progress. It helps get the word out about the podcast to more professionals and challenges the stigma related to suicide and mental health challenges. You can email your thoughts to us at admin at progress.guide with your suggestions and comments, particularly if you have questions and want us to cover certain topics in the discussion. In the next episode, we will go through the other factors in the WHERE framework and the two mental spaces, rational and rationalizing, knowledge that will transform your practice. You can access all the information at www.progress.guide. You can connect with Manan on LinkedIn or follow our LinkedIn page by searching on LinkedIn for progress.guide. We are also on Twitter and YouTube. Our Twitter handle is at guideprogress. As usual, please do follow the podcast. There'll be weekly episodes every Friday and share it with your colleagues. Your ratings will help get the word out. So please don't forget to rate us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts or Audible or whichever channel you are listening on. Helping healthcare professionals become aware of their own anxiety in the assessment process is an essential step in creating a workforce that is self-aware. Remember, together we can make a difference. Tune in next Friday and we will explore the other factors in the WHERE framework. Thank you for joining us today and keep spreading the word.